This is episode 251 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like Shakespeare, our show is supported by our patrons. Get immediate access to our entire back catalog of shows. That's over 100 additional interviews, along with patrons-only bonus content at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. Hi, I'm Chris Leffler, an ophthalmologist and the author of The History of Glaucoma and the forthcoming book, The History of Cataract Surgery. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That's Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. There are specific instances, especially in plays like Hamlet and Macbeth, in which we can see not only that Shakespeare knew these student plays, but that he engaged with them and was influenced by them. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. The theaters of The Globe, The Curtain, and The Swan all resided in parts of London considered outside of the law and housed disreputable players. In a strange twist of irony for Shakespeare's England, however, one of the most highbrow places in society also held dramatic performances in high esteem, and that place is the university. New establishment for England, universities like Cambridge and Oxford produced so many professional playwrights for the 16th century that several of them got banded together to become known as the university wits. Here this week to help us understand the role of players at major universities, as well as who it was that performed there and how these dramatic presentations interacted with those of Shakespeare, is our guest and author of a new publication on university dramas in early modern England, Daniel Blank. Daniel Blank is an assistant professor at Durham University. His research and teaching interests include Shakespeare, early modern drama, and theater history, as well as the intellectual, culture, and classical heritage of the early modern period. His articles have been published in a number of academic journals, and he has also written for the Los Angeles Review of Books and the Times Literary Supplement. His first book, Shakespeare and University Drama in Early Modern England, is forthcoming from Oxford University Press. Hello, Daniel. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. When I think about plays and players from Shakespeare's lifetime, I had always thought that they were considered this very lowbrow form of entertainment during Shakespeare's lifetime. You know, they were disreputable. They weren't the cool kids, right? They were sort of this thing over here that people did. Certainly people like the Puritans made a big fuss about them, which made it really surprising then to consider universities, which by contrast were considered, you know, very highbrow. Originally, they were training, you know, the clergy, the ultimate, you know, symbol for morality. In, in society. So it, it was surprising to know that universities would be staging performances. Why were they interested in this form of entertainment? Well, there were two ostensible purposes for university drama, at least initially, when this tradition gets started in the very early 6th century. And it took place to what you're saying, 
the training of clergy and the training of future spin. And it relates to uh, rhetoric, right? The first ostensible purpose of university drama is to train students in Latin and rhetorical proficiency. Students were, at least in theory, learning to speak and to perform. And their scholarly audiences were thought to benefit from this as well. Now, the second main purpose was religious. And again, this relates to what we're saying about clerical training. Plays were thought to help to prodigate Protestant values through the depiction of scenes from Christian as well as classical antiquity. So these are the kind of very clear pedagogical aims which allow dramatic performance to be a justified activity within the university setting. However, it is important to remember that not everyone is on board with this, right? Almost as early as we can detect dramatic activity in the early modern universities, we can also detect that there's a faction objecting to it. I think your question speaks to something really important, and it's worth noting that even those who stand by its pedagogical value, they still think of dramatic performance by commercial players as immoral and potentially corruptive. In the 16th century, there was a group of college-educated playwrights that joined forces, and they called themselves the University Wits. Daniel, tell us about this group of people. Are these men like Christopher Marlowe and George Peel, and are they examples of university players? Well, the term university wits is actually a modern coinage. Uh, It wasn't actually coined until uh, the 19th century when it's used to describe this group of playwrights who take from from Oxford and Cambridge in the late 1570s and the early 1580s, and then they go on to careers as, as writers and playwrights in London. Christopher Marlowe is, of course, the most famous, but it also includes would-have-seen student plays when he was an undergraduate at Cambridge. And there's been actually a, a considerable amount of speculation about which ones he might have seen. One really intriguing possibility, actually, is a Latin tragedy called Ricardus Tertius, which is a really spectacular production that may have been a forerunner of Shakespeare's Richard III. It's a play on the same subject. So we suspect that Marlowe probably would have seen plays. Undergraduates were seeing plays, we think, at least with some frequency. But we don't know if he would have been involved in student theatrical productions. We just don't know enough about his time at university. And it's also worth noting that the archival record of university drama is really incomplete. It has a lot of limitations. Now, George Peel, the other playwright you mentioned, is a really interesting case. Peel graduates from Oxford in the late 1570s, but he seems to maintain a relationship with the people there, with academic figures still at the university, and particularly with someone named William Gager. Now, Gager is one of the most successful and influential academic playwrights of the 16th century. And he's someone whom I discuss in my book as just an extremely important figure in the world of university drama. Gager and Peel seem to have uh, collaborated on a specific theatrical occasion in 1583. And that's a really fascinating 
and in fact, quite a rare instance of a professional playwright working together with the university playwright. And we have the documentation for this. So to go back to your question, again, we don't know, just like with Marlowe, we don't know for sure whether Peel acted in plays or whether he was involved in productions as a student. But we do know that he was involved in university performance later on. So I think it's really reasonable to wonder and even speculate about whether he might have had some earlier involvement in university drama as well. When we can see that they are overlapping here from university drama to, uh, I'm going to use the phrase professional drama as a counterpoint there. If we can tell that there is an overlap between those two things, I wonder specifically about some of the stories we do know more about, like Marlowe and Kidd. They went on to leave Cambridge and Oxford to become professional playwrights. And so I wonder whether or not their college training had intended them to be theater professionals. I mean, would they have gotten, you know, playwright as part of their degree, for example? Well, the colleges certainly weren't training them for this path intentionally. They may have done so unintentionally. Marlowe and the other university wits would almost certainly, as I say, have seen plays at university. But again, we don't quite know about their activity enough to know whether they were writing plays. But it's a really interesting question, because university plays were almost always written and performed by students. We just don't really know for sure if the university wits were doing any of that work. Now, they were learning skills at university that would help them to write plays. Again, rhetoric was a huge part of the curriculum. They would have been learning rhetoric, practicing rhetoric, studying ancient texts, but they weren't actually being taught how to write a play. It's important to keep in mind, right, that that these plays, these student plays were always considered to be extra curricular. I mean, that's a slightly anachronistic term, but it does capture the essence of what they're doing, This these activities that are beyond the bounds of the formal curriculum. The proponents of these plays certainly felt that they supported the formal curriculum, and that's how they're able to keep going, even as the acceptability, or, or we might say the permissibility of dramatic performance itself is constantly being questioned. But it's not really considered to be formal training towards a degree. I know that Shakespeare got made fun of for not being university educated. So I wonder if there was a point of value among the industry of playwrights where it was considered a good thing to have a university education if you were going to work in that industry. Or Conversely, was it considered, you know, if you were university educated, had you stepped outside of, you know, into a profession that was beneath your education, for example, would would you have been scorned somewhat or taken on any kind of shame for choosing to move into the playwriting industry after you spent years at, at Oxford and Cambridge? Yeah, I mean, it kind of depends on who you're asking, right? I mean, uh, I think within the London theater community, as you say, there are many who have university degrees. so. Others, like Shakespeare or Ben Jonson, might be seen or might have been seen as these kinds of outcasts, in a sense, or playwrights who don't have that kind of educational pedigree that makes them a member of that particular club. You know, another element of this 
is that there's a great deal of discussion happening in this period about the purpose and the function of a university degree, who's getting them, what they're good for, what they can be used for, what career paths they lead to. Actually, some of this begins to feel quite modern in a lot of ways. And what's interesting is that some university plays actually address this issue. We see this in, for instance, a a satirical trilogy called the Parnassus Plays, which these three plays are written and performed at Cambridge between about 1598 and 1601. And this trilogy depicts the path of two students who graduate from university and they can't get jobs. They can't find work. And one of their attempted career paths winds up being on the Shakespearean stage, on the London commercial stage. And one of these characters, one of these these students in the play, calls this, and I'm quoting from the play, he calls it the basest trade. The basest trade. So even though it's satire, I, I still think it speaks to this kind of lingering attitude about how becoming a professional actor or or a professional playwright was maybe not considered totally commensurate with your university education. And we should point out the Parnassus plays were written during Shakespeare's lifetime. So you're not just applying that, you know, retrospectively. This was actually written at the same time that Shakespeare was performing plays too. So this was a a very, very current commentary on the relationship between universities and the stage. Absolutely right. And it seems to me, I have suggested this in an article I wrote a couple of years ago, and I also suggest this further in my book, it seems unlikely to me that Shakespeare would not have been aware of these particular plays. Uh, They poke fun at Shakespeare himself several times. And in fact, when these two student characters within the Parnassus plays are auditioning to become actors on the public stage, they audition before character versions of Richard Burbage and Will Kemp, who were in reality two members of Shakespeare's troupe, of the Lord Chamberlain's men. So I think you're absolutely right. This is happening during Shakespeare's lifetime. And it's something that it seems to me he would almost certainly have been aware of. Now, do we know of any, and we may not have these records, but are there any people that we know about who were both university educated, but also performed in either Shakespeare's company, the Lord Chamberlain's Men, the King's Men, or even some of the other playing companies around London? Do we know of any examples of people who did do this? We don't have any examples of that, unfortunately. I mean, one thing to keep in mind, as I said earlier, right, is that the the records of the university dramatic tradition are relatively sparse. We do have some cast lists that survive, but for the most part, we don't even always know the full details of the plays themselves, let alone who the students were acting in them. For these cast lists, we can align them with members of the university, and we can see sometimes who these students were, and and sometimes we can see what they went on to do. But no, that particular overlap, I'm not aware of. And none of them are really famous on the level of, say, Christopher Marlowe. I mean, it would be so remarkable if we found Marlowe's name on one of these cast lists. But unfortunately, that is not turned up yet. 
which is one of the things that makes archival research so exciting is that there's always this hope that you're going to uncover something that you didn't have previously. And I haven't stopped trying. I haven't stopped <laughs> looking. <laughs> I think there is there is always more material out there. In the course of my research, I have turned up things I never would have expected to find. And I think it can provide us really fantastic insight. The archive can be such a valuable tool in bringing this tradition back to life. Now, our next question comes from one of the patrons of That Shakespeare Life. Our show is supported by patrons on Patreon, and as part of their support, they have the option to submit questions for upcoming topics. And this week, Daniel, we have Marlon J. that asked the question, did individual universities like Oxford or Cambridge have their own playing companies? It's a great question. Not exactly. So plays were mainly put on within individual colleges. So the casts would be usually drawn from the student body. Now, on certain occasions, for instance, when kings or queens came to visit Oxford and Cambridge and student plays were performed before them, those kinds of performances would be more university-wide affairs rather than within the individual colleges of Oxford and Cambridge. Um, so participants would be drawn from across the university from a number of different colleges. So. The concept of a company, I would say, really is more germane to the professional theatrical context. But it's so interesting to think about performers being drawn from the same body of students throughout their time at university. So we could think of that as forming a kind of playing company, in a sense. And, you know, anyone who's done student theater, who's been part of, say, an undergraduate theater troupe, myself very much included, knows that you build up a kind of rapport with other actors over the course of multiple shows. So you do form, I think, a kind of company, even if it wasn't a professional company in the sense that, say, Shakespeare's was. So what kind of plays did the universities perform? Do we have surviving records of specific performances? And I'm especially interested in what language they performed them in. Was it done in English or in Latin? Because I know Latin was the language of the university. From what we know, students were often performing Latin classical texts. Plautus, Terence, Seneca, all the kind of heavy hitters from the ancient Roman playwrights. Um, and they were performing these either as, as they had them or sometimes in slightly modified versions. There were also performances of, of ancient Greek plays, but the, these seem to have been much less frequent. And especially earlier on, there are also plays that depict scenes from the Bible and from Christian antiquity. In terms of language, one of the things I'm particularly interested in is that even though at the start of this tradition, the early 16th century, they seem to have been almost exclusively in Latin. As you say, that was the predominant language of university discourse. As the tradition continues, more and more plays wind up being performed in English. So going back to one of your earlier questions, right, it makes us wonder the degree to which the plays actually aligned with those stated pedagogical aims. I would also say it's it's important to keep in mind that this was an ephemeral tradition. Much of our knowledge of what was performed comes not through play scripts or 
firsthand accounts. We do have some of these, but not a tremendous amount of them. You know, a lot of our knowledge comes through little notations in college account books. Sometimes we will only know that the performance of, say, a tragedy took place. And we won't even know which tragedy, but we'll only know about it because the financial records note that candles were purchased for the performance of a play or something like that, right? Some little expenditure that gets noted in the account book. So the plays that we are aware of, even the ones where we don't have titles or we don't have the full script, they probably represent only really a fraction of what was actually staged. But to come back to your question, one of the things my book is most interested in are the plays that are less rooted in classical or religious traditions and plays that are more interested actually in contemporary university life, much like the the Parnassus plays that we were discussing earlier. These were the kinds of plays I think that were were particularly interesting to Shakespeare. Um, and that's something that that my book discusses at some length. So we know about Shakespeare's plays being performed at locations like the Globe or at royal court before the monarchs, but where would university dramas have been performed? And were they subject to the same regulations that Shakespeare's company were compelled to follow through the Master of the Revels? For the most part, these plays were performed in college dining halls. And in fact, that's one of the most exciting things about this branch of early modern drama is that a lot of the original performance venues are still standing. For instance, the dining hall at Christ Church in Oxford. Now people know it from Harry Potter fame, um, but much else happened before that. That was one of the most important and frequently used locations. By comparison, none of the original London theaters where Shakespeare's plays were performed have survived. But with university drama, some of the venues are not only still intact, they're actually still in use. So these performances are, in some sense, taking place in their own sort of internal spheres. And no, the Master of the Revels doesn't have any jurisdiction over them. These plays are are, are well beyond his purview. But this somewhat internal we might say, you know, this internal nature of these performances raises uh, what I think is a really crucial question. And that is, how exactly was Shakespeare encountering university drama? I mean, there's this long-standing notion of university plays as being limited to the audiences who saw them. But in fact, By the end of the 16th century, a number of influential university plays are circulating in manuscript, and some, and this is really remarkable for student drama, some are even being printed at the newly founded press in Oxford. So Shakespeare may have accessed these plays either written down or in print, uh, or maybe even through word of mouth from people like the University Wits, right, who may have seen them firsthand. And my larger project, my book, has has aimed to show that there are specific instances, especially in plays like Hamlet and Macbeth, in which we can see 
not only that Shakespeare knew these student plays, but that he engaged with them and was influenced by them. So what were the university dramas that influenced Hamlet and Macbeth? It's a slightly complicated question, but with Hamlet, one of the plays is by that playwright, William Gager, who I mentioned earlier. He puts on a version of Seneca's Hippolytus in the early 1590s that I believe shaped certain aspects of uh, Hamlet's character. With Macbeth, there's a very interesting parallel between that play and a performance at Oxford, a short performance in 1605, when King James I makes his first visit to the university. And he's met by three students outside of St. John's College who speak of an ancient prophecy about people named Macbeth and Banquo. And essentially, James is stated to be the fulfillment of that prophecy. I won't go into precisely what Shakespeare takes from these university plays. That much needs a little more teasing out, and I do that uh, at some length in the book. But these are the kinds of plays that he seems one way or another to be encountering and to be really fascinated by. So what was the relationship like between playing companies of England and the dramas being done at universities? Was there any animosity between these two groups? We've established there's overlap and and even some borrowing from the two um, groups, at least from the professional side. They're borrowing from university dramas in Hamlet and Macbeth. But I wonder if there was any animosity. Were they considered rivals or did they work together? Well, one thing we do know is that students seem to have loved to go to see professional players uh, when they came to town, even though they were not really allowed to. There were actually prohibitions set up by the university saying that students would be punished for going to see performances by these traveling players. And the university does everything in its power to prevent the temptation, as it were, the temptation of going to see these plays. They prohibit professional players from performing within the university itself, from within what what we would call the university's precincts. But the university authorities don't actually have jurisdiction over performances in the towns of Oxford or Cambridge. So one thing they try to do is, and I, I find this so kind of amusing and remarkable that we know about this, the universities actually will pay traveling players to go away. So there's a notation in the Oxford Vice Chancellor's accounts from the year 1589, I believe, just to take one example. And it records that the university paid an acting troupe so that they would leave without annoyance. I mean, the, the Latin phrase is a little different, but that's that's the meaning, um, that they will you know, just get out of there without annoying people further. So there's not so much animosity between the groups themselves as there is between professional playing companies and university authorities. But it's worth noting that the authorities, they aren't totally successful. And there are lots of performances that take place in the towns of Oxford and Cambridge. One of the most famous instances is when Shakespeare's company, the King's Men, they go to Oxford in 1610 because 
the London theaters were closed due to an outbreak of plague. And they did what they had done several times before, which was to, to pack up a few shows and take them on the road. And when they got to Oxford, they performed Ben Jonson's play called The Alchemist, and they performed Shakespeare's Othello. And we know um, from the survival of a, a really rare kind of document, a letter from an academic and, and theologian that survives, we know not only that academics were in attendance, but also that they were deeply moved by the character of Desdemona. So I think that gives us a good sense of just how close the relationship between these two theatrical worlds was. I know we would love to explore the relationship between university dramas and professional theater even further. And obviously, Daniel's book is the best place to begin. And after that, Daniel, I wonder if you could share with us some of your favorite books or resources in addition to your book that you'd recommend we use if we're just beginning to look into this part of history. What should we start with? Well, the Philological Museum uh, is is absolutely terrific. It's an online repository, an online library of humanistic texts edited by the great Dana Sutton um, in association, I believe, with Martin Wiggins. And there you can find many university plays um, often provided in translation. So it's a wonderful resource and very accessible to anyone looking to learn more about university drama and to read these really interesting and fascinating plays. Another book that, that I tend to recommend um, is by the theater historian Alan Nelson. He has a book called Early Cambridge Theaters, which gives a great account of what the performance spaces actually looked like, how they designed these performance spaces within the, the collegiate dining halls. And that book helps to visualize those spaces um, in which these plays were performed. So that can be really fascinating. I would also say that there are some great books out there, great recent books, that speak to Shakespeare's interest in intellectual culture. And that comes very near my own project. These books have kind of uh, laid the foundation for my own study. I'm thinking in particular, a wonderful book by Lynn Enterline called Shakespeare's Schoolroom, another book by Rodri Lewis called Hamlet and the Vision of Darkness. And Tanya Pollard has a study of, of Shakespeare's engagement with Greek tragedy. And that one's called Greek Tragic Women on Shakespearean Stages, all terrific books. And finally, I would, you know, at, at the risk of, of tooting my own horn, I would say that um, in addition to my forthcoming book, there are a couple of recent articles I've written. One was an article that was published in 2020 in the Review of English Studies called Our Fellow Shakespeare, a Contemporary Classic in the Early Modern University. That article thinks a lot about Shakespeare's place within the early modern university, his relationship to the early modern university. So that uh, speaks to some of the issues we've been talking about today. Going a little further back in 2017, I published an article in Renaissance Quarterly called Actors, Orators, and the Boundaries of Drama in Elizabethan Universities. That article thinks a little bit more about the anti-theatrical strain in the university that, that I was talking about earlier. Um, so if anyone's interested in anti-theatricalism and how that existed within these institutions, and ultimately what it can tell us about their theatrical cultures, I would recommend that piece. 
These are excellent resources. Thank you so much for sharing them with us. And we will link to all of these in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you go there to find the direct links for where to begin to explore these further. Now, Daniel, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. Well, thank goodness I'll have the complete works with me. I mean, that'll uh, that'll keep me occupied, um, at least for a while. Aside from that, I would take Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. I think her prose is just absolutely unparalleled. And reading her works as an undergraduate really helped me to fall in love with literature. And when I think about works that I could read over and over again without getting tired of them, that one is the first one that comes to mind. I think that sounds like an excellent selection for your desert island. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, I'm continuing to think a lot about non-professional drama in early modern England as well as its connections to the Shakespearean stage. And I've been really interested in particular recently in drama that was written and performed in private households. I've been exploring how manuscript drama falls into that category, these manuscripts that um, are still out there in various repositories that might even be unidentified but which were written and sometimes intended for performance in these private settings. I recently wrote an essay for the Times Literary Supplement about a play that was written for private performance in an aristocratic household, probably within the first couple decades of the 17th century. So I want to think more about those kinds of entertainments and the kind of role that they might have played in the early modern period. Well, I've really enjoyed looking at what you are able to uncover through your research into university dramas. So I know what will come from this project will be exciting as well. Daniel Blank, thank you so much for being here this week and taking us through the history of performances at universities during Shakespeare's lifetime. This has been a fun look at this piece of history, and I thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really great. For direct links to Daniel and his work, along with a list of the resources he recommends for you today, make sure you check out the show notes for today's episode. Along with all the links you need to explore university dramas further, we've also added some bonus history tidbits into the show notes that I think you'll really like. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 251. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP251. That Shakespeare Life is funded by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. Patron support contributes directly to the cost of running this podcast, including sound equipment, research material, and connecting with the guests you love to hear from here each week. By supporting us on Patreon, you're allowing That Shakespeare Life to be available free without any commercials. And that makes sure that when you're listening, we get you directly to the history without any ads to listen to throughout the episode. Patron support keeps our show on the air. And to say thank you for your support, we offer patrons access to our back catalog of shows that aren't available on public listening platforms. That's over a hundred bonus interviews for you to enjoy. Plus, as patrons, you get to have a direct hand in the making of our show by voting on topics that you want to hear most and contributing your questions you'd like to have asked during the interview. Your contributions make That Shakespeare Life a show that we build together. It's for listeners, by listeners every week. Learn more and sign up to be a part of our Shakespeare History 
Shakespeare listener community at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.